Welcome to DSO Overflow. I'm Glenn Wilson. And I'm his co-host, Steve Jaguer. Glenn and I are the organizers of the DevSecOps London Gathering, a monthly community meetup for anybody involved in factoring security into their software delivery, which is just about everybody. The DSO Overflow podcast is an extension of that meetup in the form of a relaxed discussion with our guests around the topics that feature in our monthly meetup. DSO Overflow wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners and, of course, our sponsors. Prisma Cloud. Cloud-native architectures have radically changed the needs of security operations and development teams as attackers capitalize on this ever-evolving landscape. Prisma Cloud breaks down silos, allowing for true DevSecOps workflows, full supply chain visibility, and enhanced responsiveness, ensuring complete security coverage across the entire application lifecycle. And Sysdig. Sysdig is driving this standard for cloud and container security. With Sysdig, you can prioritize software vulnerabilities, detect and respond to threats, and manage cloud configurations, permissions, and compliance. Your teams get a single view of risk from source to run with no blind spots, no noise, and no black boxes. And of course, a big thanks to musician Joshua Mann for our amazing DSO Overflow theme music. In this month's episode, Steve and I are joined by Orr Weiss from Permit.io. Orr talks to us about full-stack permissioning as a service, why simplifying access control is crucial to creating secure infrastructure, and how the use of access control facilitates a zero-trust architecture. He tells us a little bit about Zanzibar and Zookies. We're also delighted to introduce Jessica Craig to our podcast as a new member of the co-hosting team. So welcome to this month's episode of DSO Overflow, and we are joined by Orvice. And we also have Jess joining us to help Stephen me ask questions. So, Or, welcome. Please give us a brief introduction. Thanks, Glenn. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess quickly about myself. Um, my name is Or Weiss. As you said, my background starts in the intelligence core in the IDF, where I was a developer, officer, reverse engineer, uh, team lead, yada, yada, yada. Basically a cliche of an Israeli entrepreneur in that sense. Um, afterwards, I worked in a couple of startups. I worked in a startup that, as a first employee, in a startup that did containers before containers were a thing, but before really bad go-to-market. Um, I then worked as a VP of R&D in a cybersecurity company that caters to governments, armies, and like-minded agencies worldwide. Only worked on defensive projects, not offensive ones. Really proud of that. And um, between uh, late 2016 up till two, two and a half years ago, I co-founded and ran a CEO of a company called Brookout, which is a production debugging solution, a dev tool for uh, developers to fetch data from their production environments. And uh, more recently, I've been working on Permit.io, a access control as a service solution which enables developers to easily bake permissions into their code without constantly having to rebuild it. And I'm always excited to talk to fellow engineers about security, software development, and anything else. That's amazing. Thank you, um, or and welcome to the show. Steve, I know you like to open up with a question. Do you have a question? I always have questions. Yes, I am ready for you. And you, you ended with your, your new startup, Permit.io. And I just want you to break down. So I went to the site, and the first thing that came across my screen was full stack permissions as a service. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to ask you to dive into what that means for our listeners. Terrific question. So when I think about full stack permissions, I think about three elements that kind of uh, comprise that. 
the first part is infrastructure, just the ability to bake permissions into your code. That mainly includes a microservice that acts as your policy decision point or microservice for authorization and SDK elements that you can bake this into as enforcement points across your code. These are mainly based on open source. Uh, with Permit.io, we started by adopting OPA, Open Policy Agent, which is a general purpose decision engine. And we've empowered it and brought it to the application layer with our own open source, Opal, uh, Open Policy Administration layer, which enables you to keep your authorization layer in sync with your application in your uh, distributed data plane. Uh, the second part is a back office. So we're catering to developers. But very quickly, developers need to hand this off to other stakeholders in the organization. So think about product, security, compliance, sales, professional services, support. When you talk about access control, this is a critical experience in any product. It's like just getting into the product. And so in a company that uh, is focused on a, on a product, everyone is involved in that access control. So we enable those developers to first empower themselves and then empower the other stakeholders with low-code, uh, no-code interfaces. So for example, if a product manager or a security AppSec guy or gal wants to add a new role, the developer doesn't have to sit down and write code. They can just uh, do it on their own with those interfaces. And lastly, customer-facing interfaces. Um, so You've seen these interfaces across a billion applications, and every time you saw them, some poor schlep of a developer had to build them from scratch. So things like user management with the ability to assign roles, API key management, approval flows, the ability to ask permissions from another user, um, invites, uh, emergency access, impersonation, the list really goes on and on. So we provide those ready-made as part of the full stack approach. So you don't have to build them because they're not unique to any product. They're not unique to any uh, um, offering. So there's no reason for you to build them again and again. Um, and what really brought me to realize this is my previous company, Rookout, where I ended up rebuilding these five times in a three-year-old company. I was like, that's four times, if not five times too many. Um, so that's the idea there. So to recap, Infrastructure, back office, and customer-facing interfaces all coming in as one stack. You can bake it into your code, and you don't have to build anything unless you really want to. So you were the poor schlep of a developer. Oh, multiple times in that company. And I think I really thousands of times is not, is not an exaggeration for the amount of times I've written uh, access control interfaces for various products. I guess my next question is, why is this so hard? Why are we having to rebuild over and over and over again? Terrific question, uh, just like the previous one. Um, so I think access control is more complex and harder than it seems on the surface. I can um, remember myself building this. I was like, yeah, it's, it's going to be simple. I just throw a few things together, throw a, throw a schema into the database, a few API calls, and I'm done. Um, but you quickly realize that both the space is evolving, your application is evolving, and demands for more capabilities are constantly coming in. And it's really hard to predict what will be what will be required next. I'll give an example from Rookout. Uh, the fifth time when we rebuilt this was when our partner Cisco, um, which was selling Rookout directly to market, they asked for their own back office. 
And previously when I built this, I said, oh, I built a really great back office, a lot of interfaces. This is has a uh, top of uh, top of uh, the line uh, RBAC. Uh, but then when I looked at the code, I said, okay, there's no way I can create two back offices here. No, I have to chuck it out the window all over again. Um, so for one element is it's just really hard to understand what's going to come in next. And um, the space itself is also very complicated, especially with the move to microservices. In the past, we just had uh, one monolith with one point in it, like a, one, a couple of functions and maybe something even built in if you're using like Django or Spring Framework. You just have some basic access control baked in. But now we have a bit of access control spread out across a lot of small instances of microservices. So that's really hard. And the um, elements themselves for the policies has become more complicated because we have more compliance demands, more security demands. So those are constantly evolving. So everyone starts with like, like let's just have admin and not admin. But you quickly evolve into ACLs, access control lists. And then you move into uh, role-based access control, and then you move into RBAC with ownership or attributes, and then you move to reback and ABAC, but and that keeps going on and on and on. And those models are constantly mutating and changing. Um, so just even keeping tabs on that is really hard. And of course, when you combine in cryptography and other aspects, it's just really hard to get this right. And I think the most important thing here is maybe that developers don't need to get this right. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel here. There are great open source offerings and there are great solutions that you can just take and uh, build on top of them. Just like you're not building your authentication from scratch, just like you don't build your analytics or database from scratch, there's no reason to build authorization from scratch. Excellent. I'd like to dive into the open source projects that you touched on a little bit there. And also the just the projects generally that are powering your effort. But first, mm -hmm. before we get into that, at the moment, there are let's say some headlines where there are hackers taking advantage of getting a certain amount of access into certain organizations. Does the difficulty in revamping our access control sometimes mean that we, the result of not doing that is a soft underbelly for attacks like this? Yeah, definitely. So when you start, you always start with something simple because uh, you know, you need to move fast and sometimes break things. And there's a constant demands from deploying the application itself. So that pressure would often force you to build initially, at least, a more simple authorization layer. But as you move up market and as the product matures, you'll have more demands coming in. And with those demands and those customers, also value would come in and kind of be bound into the application and the product and the company. And that means that you're gradually becoming a more interesting target for attackers. So you both have more area to defend. You both have more requirements in those defense, and you're becoming more of a target. And that's uh, for any business that doesn't die, like in capitalism, that means that business is growing. So for every business that remains alive, though the trend is clear. The demands and friction and risk is only going to increase. And so it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And then it just becomes, how are you going to keep pace with that? And for the beginning, obviously, if you just have like a product that serves, I don't know, just you, or if it could be an internal product and be something that is customer facing. Um, but if you're serving a very small amount of users, then you probably don't need to build something too complex. 
but you need to be aware that it's going to evolve. And then you need to find a way to move to the next step, to the next tier, and gradually continue to do so in an increasing pace. And the only way to do that is if you, if you plan for that in advance, if you build your architecture, your infrastructure, and your overall design to support the, those complexities and have essentially security by design and best practices by design. Um, and otherwise, you'll find yourself just having to slow down, throw everything in the window and start again. Speaking of supporting this sort of architecture by design, um, were there any sort of lessons that you learned from working on Opal that influenced your work with Permit? Like, for instance, the sort of async data loading? Yeah. So first of all, um, Opal started uh, the other way around. We built Permit. At that point in time, it was called Authorizing. That doesn't really matter. Um, and uh, we wanted to provide these capabilities for the application layer. And we adopted OPA, Open Policy Engine, and we initially used just its uh, basic uh, um, polling solution to kind of update the policy there. Um, but we quickly saw that it just doesn't scale up. It doesn't keep up with the pace of the application itself. It creates bad experiences, like a user is added, but you need to wait for it to actually get uh, permissions. And also it was a, really a hassle to manage and scale when you have like multiple uh, policy decision points. Um, so we really quickly uh, decided to build what's now called Opal as an internal service uh, within Permit. Um, and after we built it, we saw, okay, this is good. And it's probably valuable for a lot of other people. So that's uh, open source it and see whatever people think. Also, we were really inspired by other companies. So we saw, for example, Netflix, they've built, a, there's a video from one of the KubeCons, I think, uh, where they talk about how they build their own um, authorization layer on top of OPA. And they've built something similar to Opal called a replicator um, that is really kind of deeply combined into their infrastructure. Uh, but it has kind of the same concepts of something that uh, can receive events and uh, distill data from sources and bring them into OPA. Uh, so we were kind of inspired by that. Uh, unfortunately, Netflix didn't share the source code for, for what they built. So, But we already knew that other people are kind of thinking on the same kind of lines. So we built that, we took it to open source, and we were really surprised to see that it was really welcomed very quickly. So the project is not even a year old, but it's already uh, being used by hundreds of developers. There's like a, in our Slack community and dozens of companies, including huge ones like Tesla, for example. I was shocked when they came into our Slack and said, oh, we're taking this to production. We need these and these features. And uh, connecting back to your question, so we saw th so through that we learned about other things. So, for example, they said uh, we need better control on the tokens that you have to connect Opal with the different endpoints, the different uh, Opa instances. So we have authentication and even authorization for the authorization. Uh, in general, one of the problems I find most entertaining is uh, access control for access control. Just the recursive aspect of it can keep you. Uh, entertained for hours just thinking through this, those cycles. And yeah, so we learned a lot both from the demands coming from our customers, both by taking it to our own production. And obviously, Opal is a key part of the permit architecture. So it influences it end to end. Maybe just to add one more thing, something that I baked in into permit that actually comes from our, uh, what something that I learned in Rookout. 
is the decoupled um, architecture. So when you update Opal or your Opal instance through Opal with data, that data doesn't go through the, between the client and server. The server only sends the client instructions on where to get the data. And that enables something really powerful in the form of decoupling the data plane and your control plane. So for example, when in permit, that means that we can serve our customers with Opal um, from the cloud server without having, being, having to be exposed to their data at all. So that really creates a lot of best practices for compliance, security, and it makes adopting the solution uh, a lot easier. Excellent. Glenn and I were having a conversation, actually all three of us were having a conversation about the notion of zero trust. I don't know, Glenn, if you want to grab an opportunity to expand on that. So obviously zero trust has become quite a bit of a buzzword over the last year or so, probably because of the um, uh, the pandemic and a lot of remote working. How would you marry zero trust and this whole concept that you're coming up with now? How do they fit together? How, how would an, an engineer who wants to do zero trust come to uh, the solutions that you're talking about and marry them together. It, first of all, when you think about access control or identity access management, it's important to understand that it applies to our world in layers. So you need access control for your physical layer. Like you have a lock on your door, uh, a handle on your window. Um, then you move to like the network layer and that's where firewalls and zero trust networks come in. And then you move to the infrastructure layer and you have like admission control in Kubernetes and you have uh, service to service access control in the infrastructure layer, also in Kubernetes or something else. Yeah. For example, as part of the API gateway uh, or service mesh. And then you graduate to the application layer where it's specific logic for what you're building. And uh, you don't get to pick and choose. You have to have all of these. Um, just from basic security concepts, a chain is just only as strong as its weakest link. So if you have a gap in any of those, uh, you're going to have a bad time. So mostly when people talk about zero trust, they are talking about zero trust networks, meaning how people and devices connect to the uh, physical or um, uh, upended virtual layer um, that is part of the organization or infrastructure. Um, and a lot of the concepts that you have in the application layer apply to the uh, physical layer as well. Um, usually what you see is as you climb up the stack, the, both the complexity uh, of the policy and rules and the speed uh, increases. Because the higher you move up, you have more agents acting on the layers on top and you have more virtualized aspects and more logical layers uh, like more microservices and more users and different roles and behaviors that they'll have that is specific to each application. Those so you'll have a complex, uh, a more complex world picture of just describing the rules, and you'll have more actors acting on it in a faster pace. It's essentially the same thing, and you can take a lot of the same techniques. So you can take OPA and Opal to any of the layers. Obviously, for the like the physical layer, you need a device to act there. In addition. Um, but otherwise, it would translate exactly the same. And OPA, being a uh, general purpose decision engine, is being used across the stack. Um, it, uh, it was initially actually meant for the application layer, but they didn't really, um, they weren't really able to make it uh, stick. 
Um, and it really got its fame as part of uh, Kubernetes with admission control uh, as part of a gatekeeper and with uh, um, uh, policy reviews as part of ConfTest. Um, but it's obviously we're using it in the application there. And I know of other companies using it for infrastructure access control and using it for uh, basically everything. Um, and Opal just works seamlessly with OPA, so you can use it there as well. It's all, I think, a decision about what is the amount of effort, complexity, and speed that you need. And you don't have to adopt them. You don't have to be at the best grade that they want, but you need to be able to upgrade to it. And working with uh, uh, general purpose solutions like OPA and Opal would enable you to do that down the road. It's interesting you mentioned that uh, OPA got its, its springboard, let's say, off of the, the Kubernetes world and through admission control. When, when that started and I started to dive into OPA, I found that it was maybe a little complex or a little too powerful for the way it was being introduced in that arena. And when I saw what it really was capable of, I was kind of sitting back and waiting for somebody to build some brilliant abstractions on top of it, which does seem to be what it is exactly that you're doing, which is yeah. amazing. One thing we haven't mentioned that I saw on your on your website was a third element here called Zanzibar that I'm unfamiliar with. Can you break that down for me? Yeah, sure. So in general, Access control and authorization is part of the bigger IIM space, identity access management. So we have their identity management, we have authentication, and authorization is kind of like the last tier. While identity management and authentication are rather mature, you have uh, in each you have several multi-billion dollar companies, and in each you have standards like SAML and OpenID Connect and JSON Web Tokens. Authorization is still kind of nascent. Um, we haven't decided as society or humanity, I don't know what how you want to call it, uh, the global community of, uh, of developers. We haven't decided yet what is the right standard for writing policies, managing infrastructure and applications, uh, access control. That's still um, up for grabs, still evolving. And currently, if we take a kind of a quick snapshot, um, we'll see that there are two camps uh, leading the charge a code-based camp with OPA and other players like Oso and Casbin. Uh, and the other camp is uh, a graph-based camp led specifically by Google Zanzibar. Google Zanzibar is a, uh, for most of the public, it's, it's a white paper that Google published on how they do access control for some of their main products like YouTube and Google Drive, mainly for large-scale, fine-grained, global access control. The basic idea with Zanzibar is that you map your policy and the world picture that relates to it into a graph. So, for example, in Google Drive, you'll have uh, the organization as a nodes, and when I say graph, I mean edges and nodes, not axes. So, the, uh, for example, for Google Drive, you'll have a node for the organization, and then you'll have sub-nodes for folders, and within them more folders, and within them more folders, and then you'll have a file. And to that file, you'll have, for example, Steve, uh, you'll have, sorry, you'll have a role, like um, viewer, and you have Steve connected to that role. In addition, let's go to the top and add to the organization, we'll add uh, Jessica, and we'll give her an editor role. So now, if we want to answer the question, does uh, Jessica have access to the file? So we can navigate on the graph to do that. So we started the file and we start uh, navigating our way up until we reach a leaf. In that case, the leaf is Jessica. And we can see that she has access 
through the editor role, which is another node uh, on that graph. And the same thing would be for Stephen, though it would be a quicker navigation because that's really a direct link to, uh, or a direct edge, I should say, to the file. And we can resolve multiple cases of, of access rules through navigation on that graph. So that's the basic concept there. It has uh, pros and cons as compared to um, code-based. With, um, with code-based, we're getting something that is Turing complete. We're writing code, right? So we can describe anything. But like mathematically proven, it can be anything. With the graph, if we try to make it any graph out there, it will basically become unnavigable. Uh, it will become very complex, especially if we get it, if it becomes not direct and acyclical, you'll start just spinning around in the graph and your uh, queries will just never resolve. So essentially with uh, Google Sensor you can only implement Reback relationship-based access control and slightly more slightly more complex uh, derivatives of it, but you can use it to manage really a very large picture. You can have a very huge graph as long as it's basically simple, and you can maybe the one of the biggest benefits there that doesn't exist at all in the code-based camp is reverse indexing. Um, so with code, we can only run it one way, right? You can't run the code the other way around. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, but with a graph, you can navigate the other way. And through that, you can answer questions like, who has access to the file? Instead of, does X have access to that file? Um, and that's, if you think about it, that's very valuable for overall management, for security compliance. A lot of times you want to say, in general, what is the case that we're handling here? What edge cases are we missing, for example? Kind of going back to the beginning of the, the question, that's what Google Zanzibar is. It's a, another approach to managing policies. It has pros and cons, and uh, it's still undecided what is if it's better or uh, inferior to uh, the code-based camp. Um, in general, when people kind of consult with me what they should go with, I often advise uh, small, medium-sized companies or in general companies that don't have millions upon millions of users to stick to the code-based camp. It will give them more flexibility, more uh, control on the their access control layer. Um, but, and for ones that have to build, like really support millions of users, I recommend uh, going to the Google Sense part. Most importantly though, is using best practices. By creating a separate layer from, uh, for access control, you can then shift decision, decisions. You can start with code base and then upgrade to graph or the other way around. There are a few talks that I gave that include kind of a deep dive into those best practices, but the main one is decoupling your policy and code and having a separate microservice for authorization. And that will enable you to kind of stick with that evolution that we've been constantly touching on. That's fascinating. Graphing is the way forward. It's funny, uh, but it has so many pitfalls. I, I can relate to this quite a bit, having worked with creating graphs in terms of vulnerability prioritization when you're looking at infrastructure as code. For easy things, Turing complete code-based is so simple. Um, but if you're trying to do relationships, it's absolutely essential, except we did manage to create a certain Terraform application that built a one gigabyte graph that completely crashed everything. So it's important to get it right. Yeah, it's important to get it right. And it's important to um, be able to kind of shift between things. And it's important to be able to test. One of the 
things that people kind of uh, developers really kind of miss is they they choose an option and they just kind of go gong ho on it and they only test it at the end and that's when you realize like with Uh, relevant schemas and relevant uh, actual the production database and that's when you start to realize oh it conceptually works but it's like super slow um, so it's really important to build this gradually test as you uh, deploy upgrades and uh, not go and build long projects on this uh, and only t- uh, connect them to reality down the road it's it's really important to be iterative you mentioned earlier you were talking about earlier about access control um, one of the things that I quite often faces that access control is very dynamic as well so it's not a static moment in time that this person has permission to this file that permission could change based on um, certain behavior or certain time constraints and so forth like that could you explain a bit more about how you know how, how you would apply that type of heuristics yeah so uh, that's actually a part of a very big question and there are two I'd say two key points or two sub problems that uh, connect to that one is speed and experience like how we deliver good uh, user experiences that people would be happy with and keep in pace with the pay with the application itself and the other part is how we remain consistent so um, I'll start with the consistency I think just to uh, explain what I mean by that when we have microservices they're shooting queries and requests between one another constantly and one request that you send in can trigger multiple flows between several microservices and the and that takes time maybe not a lot of time but it takes time the world picture for authorization can actually change between the beginning of the request coming into one microservice until it reaches another uh, so there's a challenge there of just even keeping the world picture consistent between your different uh, um, authorization queries or uh, microservice requests and uh, and the other part is obviously keeping that world picture in sync with the different data syncs so I'll give an example there even for a basic policy today like uh, only uh, we want only paying users in the continental US to be able to use the feature. There are two bits of it, critical bits of information there. Who is that user paying? And that doesn't reside in your database anymore. That would be in a third-party service like a Chargebee or Stripe or PayPal. So we need to be able to bring that in quickly. And also the geolocation, people can move around um, and uh, IP addresses change and people can use VPNs. That's also very dynamic. So we also need to be able to query that in a dynamic fashion. Um, so we have... Uh, essentially three problems here making this fast enough making this uh, in sync with the overall uh, world picture and keeping it consistent across the those updates um, and that's uh, obviously very challenging and I think and there are multiple approaches here to kind of solve this and I think in the end of the day we'll see them kind of mingle or merge together I'll start with uh, with The approach that we take with Opal and permit IO so what we try to do there is to a be aware of changes as quickly as possible and B allow changes to propagate as quickly as possible so and that's essentially what Opal does Opal creates a lightweight uh, pops-up channel that allows the different um, uh, authorization la- layers of uh, different PDP points to get the data that they need on the fly 
And part of that is getting the update on the fact that the world picture is changed before they actually get the data itself. And then as part of your policy, you can make a decision according to the transaction, according to essentially the health check. You can say, oh, I have enough information on this, but that bit of information, for example, the I know that the billing information uh, that I have is stale. And uh, then you can decide how you want to act according to that. In Google Zanzibar, the approach there is to use something called Zookeys, which are essentially a amalgam of Zanzibar and cookies. The idea there is to um, work with essentially um, kind of a um, timestamp-based hash that you can pass throughout your queries. And that kind of um, basically uh, identifies the snapshot that you have uh, for that uh, point in time, which can also be used to um, be aware of what it, what what is stale and what is new, because can you be aware? You can be aware of things that have changed since your snapshot, and you can also remain consistent throughout the different uh, services and have them all work with the same snapshot. It's a very complicated pro- uh, piece of technology. Uh, for those that really want to dive into this, I recommend write, uh, reading the white paper. And also, there's great content from uh, both AFZ and um, which is a company that provides an a open source solution for Google Zanzibar and Ori, which um, they have a, Ori Keto, which is also a open source Zanzibar implementation. Um, they're both still kind of, uh, they're, they're not full Zanzibar solutions. Uh, SpiceDB from Offset is slightly more mature, uh, but either way, both of them provide content on both Zookies and the Zanzibar concept and how you can uh, think about it. Um, maybe jumping a bit ahead, uh, I really believe that these two approaches should kind of merge in. I think we should have event-driven, um, code-based, uh, edge uh, policy decision points that are powered by a big graph in the cloud, a Zanzibar in the cloud that can propagate Zookies to them and uh, maintain the core picture in a consistent relational way. Uh- I'm going to ask a question then you haven't quite answered yet, and hopefully it'll springboard us. Uh, from personal experience, you mentioned different use cases that you've had. There's been scenarios where we tried to take a SaaS solution from the vision where we had an organization um, logging in and everyone was, nobody required multi-tenancy. There's the idea of multi-tenancy in a larger sense between separating organizations, but then there's the idea of isolating teams within a single organization, and that often ends up being an afterthought. And that often ends up being the catalyst that means I have to completely redo all this because the way I designed it doesn't work. Is what we're talking about a way of enabling somebody to pivot into that a lot in a much easier way? Uh, for sure. If we break it, if we break multi-tenancy down. It actually, to achieve multi-tenancy in a, let's call it a compliant, actually feasible way, uh, you need to apply it in two layers. One is in the uh, infrastructure for your data storage and transmission, mainly your data storage. And secondly, in your uh, application itself. So you need to be able, What, what does, maybe we should explain what multi-tenancy is in, in practice. So we have multiple uh, in modern applications. Uh, we have microservices, and we want every instance of every microservice to be able to cater to different organizations or different tenants uh, without having to deploy specific ones per, uh, per customer. 
Uh, it really enables greater scale, flexibility. It's really what cloud native is about, essentially. So we want to be able to write microservices that would have the ability to change context dynamically for each tenant as a request comes in uh, without having to uh, suffer too much in the process. Um, when you think about it, for the code itself, the access control layer uh, basically becomes your multi-tenancy uh, context because it it should, if you're building it correctly, it should directly handle the identity. It should make all the decisions according to what that uh, entity can access or not and silo it within both the logical access and in the intermediate into the physical or like uh, uh, infrastructure access. So for using a policy solution for your application layer would completely enable you to bake multi-tenancy in just as by changing your policy. That will cover you end-to-end. The other part that I mentioned that remains is how you handle the infrastructure, both storage and transmission. It's mainly about how you keep the data of different tenants separated so you don't have errors where one, you write a query and you think it uh, fetches data or changes data for one tenant and it actually does it for a couple. And on the surface, it's not too hard to do. Uh, you can apply it through doing using for like most naive approach, have a different, different database for each uh, uh, um, uh, tenant. And then you can go and have a different table and then you can have a different partition within the table, depending on the database, obviously. And you can even do a separate column that indicates uh, which tenant this uh, data belongs to. And you can apply filtering according to that. On the surface, that's uh, a, first. It's a simpler problem than the application layer, but it still can be somewhat complicated. And I know that there are upcoming startups that are going to tackle that problem specifically. But uh, for those of you that want to tackle it on their own, it's really about being a good DBA, designing your the layout and schemas of your database in a way that partitions and silos the data in a way that is foolproof or at least error reduces the risk of error when you uh, write silly queries. There's another bit here. It's the uh, infrastructure for data data in transit. So for example, your um, message queues and your uh, and buckets and, um, and, um, and obviously live sockets and stuff like that. Um, that. Those also need to be siloed to some degree, though often topics, for example, in Kafka or another solution can cover you in that area. But the more you have, more infrastructure you have around that area, it can, it can add complexity. I don't have any questions. Jess, do you have any questions? I don't know. I think you've um, covered off a bunch of the, the ones that I was going to ask, uh, even down to um, a tangential point around spice and how, as a society, as an industry, we seem to be obsessed with doom. So that's kind of cool. I think uh, Google Zanzibar drove a lot of inspiration from Frank Herbert and Dune and uh, concept the concepts there. And um, I really like to think about the reverse indexing in Zanzibar, like the really unique spicy element that uh, doesn't exist uh, elsewhere. And I think the main idea like the um, with spice there is that um, uh, in Dune, the navigators use the spice to be able to safely navigate uh, through the cosmos without 
uh, flying the ship into, uh, I don't know, an asteroid or something. And the idea is that uh, the authorization layer is what enables you to navigate safely in the uh, software space. Excellent. Nice. Very satisfying. Perfect analogy. Uh, not mine, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, thank you so much all for coming along and uh, talking to our listeners Um so much interesting topics so many so many interesting talking points for them to take away um if they want to get in touch with you how would they do that um first of all i'd encourage them to do so i always enjoy talking to uh fellow engineers and entrepreneurs and uh, tech leaders um it's really easy to find me on social media it's just or wise o-r-w-e-a-s uh both on linkedin twitter uh, and elsewhere get up um, uh, the easiest way to reach me is uh, through our Slack community um, for Permit.io. So if you go to Permit.io, there's a big community button on top. You can get directly into our Slack and just shoot me a message. Uh, I think most people will be surprised uh, how quickly I respond. And, um, and, and again, I encourage uh, people to do so. Also, if people are like working on uh, their own architecture and they have questions and they don't know if you want if they should go to Zanzibar, OPA, also, or anything else, um, really reach out and I'll be happy to uh, at least give you my, my two cents on it. Amazing. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming along. Thanks so much. Cool. That's a wrap. So thank you for listening to this episode. Please contact us via email at team, that's T-E-A-M, at dsolg.com if you wish to either give us a talk at a monthly gathering or come and join us on this podcast. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review from where you downloaded this episode. It will help us spread the news about DevSecOps and reach a larger audience. And we'll catch you in a month's time for our next DevSecOps London Gathering Meetup and, of course, the follow-up podcast, DSO Overflow. I'm Glenn Wilson. I'm Steve Jaguar. See you next time. 